I bet your amygdala is bigger on the right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, explains everything. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by fractional vegans. Do you guys know what fractional vegans are? Uh, no idea. So we are talking about, the, on the podcast today, we're talking about fractional dosing of vaccines. But I have I have a, a colleague, Tom Ahern. Tom, if you're listening, I'm sure you're not. But if you are, Tom is a fractional vegan, which means that he he is completely vegan for breakfast and lunch. And then for dinner, he eats whatever he wants. So he's a two-thirds vegan. Oh, that's like Wolfie. Is that cheating? <laughs> it is as far as I'm concerned. Oh, God. So if there are any fractional vegans out there, I apologize, but I am not convinced. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am here, as always, with Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Matthew. And once again, we are joined by Dr. Don Thea from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Don. Hey, Matt. Hey, Chris. Hello. And as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. BU's hub for lifelong learning. Lots of interesting stuff over there. And then as soon as you're done, you get off that website, you you navigate on over to iTunes or, or Stitcher. And you leave us a, a rating that says, I really have no idea what a fractional vegan is, but uh, I still enjoy the podcast, and that would make us so happy. So go ahead and do that. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to talk about a study on fractional dosing of vaccines, which was, to me, a really interesting thing in light of what's going on with COVID vaccines right now. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about allergic reactions to the Pfizer vaccine. And then in our final segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into things that make us laugh out loud, or Chris will give us a detailed lecture on the quadratic equation. No, uh, because, because Chris, uh, a lot of people don't know, Chris was a, a math major as, a, as an <laughs> undergrad, so he can explain this in extensive detail. <laughs> Chris was Chris was not a math major, but Chris apparently has been under the impression that I was a math major, which I was not. I was a I was an English literature major. So I there think you go. we are both of us considered to be quite square, and so that's the closest I get to the quadratic equation. That is probably true. All right, so segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at the effect of a fractional dose of the yellow fever vaccine, and Chris tells us that this is actually an interesting topic, not just for yellow fever vaccine, but also for other vaccine so we can talk about it, but it was published in The Lancet, and the study was entitled Immunogenicity and Safety of Fractional Doses of Yellow Fever Vaccines, a Randomized, Double-Blind, Non-Inferiority Trial by first author Aitana Juan Guiner of the Epicentre in Paris, France, which I believe is related to Médecins Sans Frontières. Yeah? Somebody can tell me if I'm wrong about that. I have no idea. Don't know. So, this one got some headlines, so I'll read you a few. So Relief Web says, fractional doses of yellow fever vaccine can help save more lives. IPP Media says yellow fever vaccine dose fraction can also save lives. Vanguard News says MSF research could save more lives from yellow fever. And Two Minute Medicine says fractional doses of yellow fever vaccines are non-inferior to standard dose in seroconversion conversion 
at 28 days post-vaccination. So they like got the whole abstract wow. pretty much in the, the title of their article, which impressed me. Pretty specific. It really is. So Chris, can you walk us through this study? Sure. So let's start with an overview of yellow fever. This is a, this is a viral disease that is transmitted by the mosquito Aedes aegypti, A-E-D-E-S. I mentioned that because when I was young, my best friend John thought that my uncle 80 was so cool because his name was a number. But it's actually Adrian, not 80. It's A-D-Y. So Aedes aegypti is the the vector for yellow fever. It's a very common disease found not just in the tropics, but, you know, used to be actually pretty widely disseminated wherever, you know, Aedes aegypti could survive. And this is a very effective vector and survives everywhere. So you would have outbreaks of yellow fever in Philadelphia and sometimes even in Boston. So, you know, this is a a disease we think of as being tropical, but it it actually is not, strictly speaking, a tropical disease. It is, however, a very nasty disease with about a 10 or 20% mortality when you get it. Mm. So it it is nothing to, to mess with. And the vaccine that we use to prevent yellow fever is actually one of the oldest vaccines in our repertoire. It was developed in the 1930s by a uh, South African scientist called Max Tyler, T-H-E-I-L-E-R. And it is a, what is so-called live attenuated viral vaccine, meaning that they have taken the, the wild type strain of yellow fever virus and tamed it in the laboratory so that it is no longer pathogenic or minimally pathogenic. And the, the strain that they developed back in the 1930s, which they call 17D, is the very same strain still used for all yellow fever vaccines today. And so this has got a kind of an interesting history. Now, a couple of years ago, there was a huge outbreak of yellow fever in the African country, Angola. And the, the, the efforts to, to control the Angola yellow fever outbreak led to a global depletion of yellow fever vaccine stocks. And so other parts of the world started having outbreaks of yellow fever too, because they were unable to give routine yellow fever vaccinations to their population. So this led to questions like, you know, since it was difficult to increase the production of yellow fever vaccines, and because there's very little financial incentive for companies to do so, basically the number of yellow fever vaccine manufacturers we have and their capacity is pretty much fixed right now largely for financial reasons, not because it couldn't be done, but because there's no financial incentive to do so. So they were casting about for alternative strategies for how to make their yellow fever vaccine stocks go further. And one idea, which really sort of caught attention, was to divide the dose of the vaccine into some fractional uh, amount. So instead of using, you know, a full strength dose, could they get away with a half strength dose or a third strength dose, or as in the current study, a one fifth dose of the yellow fever vaccine, and would that affect the the immune response generated by this this vaccine? So they actually ended up running a uh, an eight arm double blinded randomized controlled trial of, to answer this question, looking at the four manufacturers of the four different seventeen D strain attenuated yellow fever vaccines that are produced in the world, and in each case. The subjects were were randomly allocated to either receive a single dose of the full-strength vaccine or to receive a dilution, basically a one-fifth dose of the yellow fever vaccine. And then they they, they took a sample of blood at the baseline to sort of measure what their their starting immune response or immune level was against yellow fever. And then at 10 days after they've been vaccinated and at 20 days after they've been vaccinated, and I think at one further time point as well. But the main endpoint for the study was the 28 days post-vaccine seroconversion rates, which means 
what proportion of people saw a fourfold rise in their neutralizing antibody titers from baseline to one month after the vaccination. And so that was basically the study. It's in fact an extremely straightforward randomized controlled trial. And the really interesting thing that came out of that is that the immune responses to the full strength versus the one-fifth dilutions of, of the yellow fever for all four vaccines was almost identical. And in fact, somewhat paradoxically, the one-fifth dilution tended to be slightly more immunogenic than the, the full strength, but the difference was, was trivial. We're talking about within one or two percentage points in terms of the seroconversion rates, but mostly across the board, the split was actually in favor of the people who had received the one-fifth dilution. I, I wouldn't put too much stock in that because it's a very yeah. small difference, and there are all sorts of reasons why this is sort of on the cusp of randomness. But nonetheless... It really made the point that there was effectively no penalty to be paid for quintupling your vaccine capacity just by dilution. I, I thought this this was such a a useful observation, and um, you know, with such obvious financial and uh, pragmatic and public health impact. I thought this study was uh, was really quite clever, and I loved it. So, uh, and also the, the results are. I have to say pretty unambiguous because in in this case, you know, we have a, a categorical study endpoint that is really not subject to bias whatsoever. And in addition to that, when they went through their sort of routine checklists of, you know, assessing the, the quality, the mechanics of the study, et cetera, et cetera, this was a really well done clinical trial with very low rates of dropout and, you know, very few opportunities for misclassification or, or other places where bias might creep in. So I thought they gave a really clear answer to a very pragmatic question. Yeah. All right, Don, Don, what was your, what was your take on this? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with Chris. I, I thought it was, you know, it's a, it's a pretty standard uh, RCT, uh, non-inferiority study with which Matt, you and I have a little bit of experience from some of the work that we've done. And, you know, they, they, they did it by the book. You know, there was nothing really fancy here. And I, I think that the results are pretty unambiguous. And I agree that this is the kind of sort of post hoc research that could markedly improve public health. And and I think I, I really applaud them for that. In that, in that we make you know we make a known quantity of vaccine available in in times of shortage, and that gives us in essence global surge control over the you know development of of these yellow fever epidemics. And they continue to smolder on, and there are hot spots all the time, all over the world. And the vector that Chris was talking about, the 80s Aegypti mosquito, in fact, is the same mosquito that transmits West Nile disease and Zika and chikungunya and dengue. And that vector is spreading throughout, I mean, it's, 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 its area of habitation is spreading all the time. So there is more and more parts of the globe that are potentially at risk. And the vaccination is really our bulwark against further dissemination of these epidemics. But the other thing that I wanted to say was that it's interesting that Chris said that this is one of the first vaccines that has been produced. I'm on the I'm a member of an independent data safety and monitoring board for a COVID vaccine manufacturer, and I've just gone through the phase one, phase two, phase two B, and phase three studies, and it's really interesting because they very carefully estimate what they think the uh, just below effective initial doses, and they give that vaccine 
to small groups of people at escalating doses until they get a plateau effect where the sero um, the antibody levels are equivalent to convalescent serum for people that have um, gotten over COVID. And it's more time consuming. It's a little bit more difficult, but they can back into the, the proper level. And I wonder whether that was even considered way back when, when the yellow fever vaccine was first thought of and first developed. Prob- my guess is probably not. And that, that because of that, they just came up with a particular dose. The second, this, the, which was, you know, this, this study proves is not optimal and it's um, a little bit wasteful. The only other thing that I'd like to say is that they're using surrogate markers and the jury is really not out until th- there is another study that is done to show clinical efficacy in human beings because yeah. antibody levels are not the be all and end all because you know a, a lot of people now know about the existence of T cells and how they are also induced by vaccinations and become an important part in the in the armamentarium against either preventing or attenuating disease once you get it. So I, I don't think this is the full story, but it's a really good good start. Yeah. Chris, you wanna you wanna respond before I, I get in? Yeah, yeah. I, I I just had a couple other things to to add, which were which were really interesting. That were in response to to your observations about how they try to figure out what is the optimum dose for for the COVID vaccines. And so I I would assume that back in Max Tyler's day, none of that was done. They had no way of measuring an output because they didn't have an assay. Currently, we use this plaque reduction neutralization titer assay, but you know Max Tyler certainly did not have anything like that back in 1935. And so they just, you know, went for, you know, something that gave a big immune response, which they probably couldn't measure very accurately anyway. But so they were looking at it in terms of its ability to prevent clinical disease. More recently, we now have this this assay, the PRNT, and the WHO says that a yellow fever vaccine, in order to be protected, should have a titer of at least 40, 40. But when you look at the, the responses in terms of the geometric mean titers that were measured in this study, they're on the order, you know, after 28 days of two, three, four thousand PRNT units. So, you know, a hundredfold or 10, yeah, a hundredfold higher. Uh, you know, I did the math right? Yes, a hundredfold higher than what the WHO sort of sets as its, as its target for minimal efficacy. So we are way above where we need to be. And so it was at 28 days. At 28 days. And it was also so interesting because they, they provide some some reactogenicity data along with this. And there is also there no real difference between the full strength versus the, the one-fifth strength. So not only is the immune response kind of maximal in both cases, meaning that we are probably way above the, the actual amount of a virus that we actually need in this vaccine, but that but we are crit, so above that that we're we're sort of hitting sort of a maximal reactogenicity profile as well. Yeah. But Chris, I think one of the, one, I, I hear you. I think one of the, one of the important things addressed by the study also was that they looked at the, the levels a year out. And it's probably important also to look at the levels two and three and five years out so that populations who are susceptible to yellow fever would be protected. I mean, 28 days would be really important in terms of using the vaccine to attenuate an outbreak. But in terms of sort of more chronic protection, we don't really know how how the the antibody levels are going to look five years later. Right. All we know is that the difference between day 28, for example, if we look at the Sanofi Pasteur 17D vaccine, the, the day 10 response gave you a titer of around 70 to 100 between the two, you know, the full strength and the fractional dose. And that at 28 days, the GMT was 5,500, 
And at one year, it was 5,000. So almost no change between day 28 and one year. So, you know, oftentimes we try to infer the persistence of a vaccine effect by basically, you know, extending that line. But the line, mm. at least at one year, is flat. Mm. You know, and typically yellow fever is believed to provide, you know, at least 10 years, if not lifelong immunity. And, and those data actually kind of look like that because there seems to be very, very little decay over time in the, you know, the immune response. And maybe that's because of natural boosting. I don't know. But nonetheless, it was, it was sort of interesting to note. Parenthetically, after I, I read this paper, I went back and looked at the, the, the Pfizer briefing doc because I was really curious about the dose finding evidence that they presented for the COVID-19 vaccine. And, and there, it's, it, it's in there, but it's in the phase one trial, which has not gotten nearly as much attention as the phase two trial data, which showed clinical efficacy. But it did show immunogenicity across three different doses, because the, the Pfizer vaccine was, was tested at 10 micrograms, 20 micrograms, and 30 micrograms. And in, in a similar way to what we're seeing with the yellow fever study here, there was almost no difference in the immune response between those three dose sizes, though the reactogenicity was markedly worse with the 30 micrograms than the 10 micrograms. But in terms of immune response, they were practically indistinguishable, with, with the exception that in the elderly, it was subtly worse at, at less than 30 micrograms. But the difference was, was, was pretty marginal because we're talking about very, very robust immune responses in, in all cases. Okay, so I have some thoughts on this study, but I will come back to those because I do actually want to pick up on the point that you just raised when you talked about the the COVID vaccines, and and I think because I think it relates to what we're talking about here. I always sort of you know you're talking about doses, and and you know there are certainly ways with as you talked about Don dose escalation type studies. You mentioned phase one, two, three studies. You know those are sort of your basically your your one and two are your your kind of studies to figure out your dose and your your safety. Phase three is your big efficacy type studies. But I can see logically how you can figure out the the dose because you can you can do these sort of increasing doses and figure out which one is leading to the best uh, immune response in relation to the the side effect profile or or the efficacy profile, whatever it is you're looking at. With COVID though, we're we're dealing with a, a vaccine that requires at least for the Pfizer and the Moderna, two two shots, a shot and then a booster shot. One is, if I understand correctly, 21 days later. One is 28 days later. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know, like, so, you know, there's dose that we got to figure out. There's also timing we have to figure out. It's, you know, it feels to me, and I'm sure I'm wrong about this, that those are just numbers plucked out of thin air. Like, how do they know that one vaccine requires the the second dose to be at 21 days and the other one requires it at 28 days because there are there are infinite combinations that we could try. So how do they how do they figure that out, Chris? Yeah, they're, they're, some, some, they don't know that. They they chose to do that. It, right. It wasn't based on let's look at 21 days versus 28 days versus 56 days. I, I, no, but 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 at least at least in the data that I've seen from the the DSMB that I on for this manufacturer, they had they based it initially on animal data, and and that's you know animals are not humans, but it gives you some sort of guideline guideposts in but order even to, in animals, to aim how do you how do you figure that out in animals? You test lots of different timings. Well, you do, no, you give you give them, you give them the vaccine. You can vaccine one and vaccine two, and then you bleed the animal and you look for a level of neutralization. After those, and you can you can do a whole bunch of experiments in animals to see when is the optimal second peak of the antibody response based on the duration between between shot one and shot two. 
Well, that may well be true, but I, I have not seen any of the animal data for the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, so I, I have no idea what what led to these decisions. But I, I, I have to say my assumption is a little bit more cynical, which is that I think that the reason that we see Pfizer had a 21-day first dose to second dose gap is probably more likely because it provided them a slight marketing advantage over Moderna. And it also probably also shortened the duration of their phase two trial to some small degree. But these are all competitive marketing advantages, you know, whereas, you know, what we have seen with, with most other vaccines is that, you know, spacing the doses further apart generally makes them more rather than less efficacious. So there's no rational reason why you would want to, you know, compress the, the, the doses unless, I mean, there's a public health advantage, I suppose, because you get the second dose in sooner. But the way to know that would have been to incorporate in a you know, subset of their, of their participants, and it wouldn't have to be very many. You could probably do this in two or 300 people, and look at all the different permutations of dose spacing and dose size to see what really matters. But they didn't right. do that. They didn't do that. So rather, they went for, you know, we show in phase one as a two-dose vaccine, even though it is way above the FDA's target of 50% efficacy. And even though Johnson & Johnson is saying 70% after a single dose, you know, the evidence shows that a single dose for either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine is probably closer to around 90%, in which case they should be doing cartwheels about this being a fantastic single-dose vaccine. But that's not the way it was licensed. And so here it, we are. It, it, we are now stuck in a two-dose vaccine mode because they did not ask and answer the question when they had the opportunity. In fact, they are doing that in the UK with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So they are they are uh, collecting data in the cohort of people that are being vaccinated currently, and they are looking at that duration and they are they are um, assessing that with relation to the antibody level. So I think we we will get information with regards to that particular vaccine, but I agree that that has not been done for these two vaccines. And it's a shame. It's a shame because now we have these sort of you know how many how many vaccinologists can dance on the head of a pin arguments about what do we do with an apparent efficacy of ninety percent after one dose when you only have two weeks of follow up? I mean it's unresolvable, and and yet well, even- Chris, I I I I, dis- I disagree. I. I think that I think the you know the 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 emergency aspect of this was so great that they had to get it out as quickly as possible rather than being more complete and 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 taking more time. That work can be done later on. We have a you know we have a massive public health crisis that needs to be addressed now. Now. Yeah, but so it's not being I, I don't, done. I don't, I'm not a. It's not well, being done. I don't know that it's not being done. Okay, can I can I interrupt here to go back to actually talk about yellow fever for a second? Sure. Which is the the, the study we were actually here to talk about, which is oh, a yes. study of yellow fractional fever. very bad fract- fractional doses of yellow fever. So you both were were pretty you know pretty happy with this study, and I noticed you also didn't have that much to actually say about the study, so much as the the concept. And I would postulate I I have a little bit more skepticism I think than the two of you had on this one. And I would postulate it's for the same reason that you all had less to say about the study, which is there is actually not a lot presented to us in this study as supporting evidence for the the effectiveness that is that is presented here. So, Chris, you said this is a eight arm trial, eight arm trial. I mean, we steer away from many arm trials because the more arms you have, the more complicated it gets. I admit this one's a little easier because really the only difference between the, the, you know, the 
four of the arms uh, is whether or not they were which which vaccine they were getting and the other four were the same and that they were all really placebo. So, you know, but, you know, it's a complex design and the more complex it is, the you know, the, the more information I want to see that they were able to, to pull this off. They were because it was an eight arm trial, there were only 120 subjects per arm, which is not a lot of subjects and always leads me to concerns that, you know, you just have chance confounding. When you go to look to see whether or not there's any chance confounding, there is no data for us to be able to look at. So their baseline table, which is the table you usually look at for, you know, the baseline comparison, contains a total of three variables. Sex, HIV positivity, of which there was almost none, and seropositive for yellow fever, of which there was very little. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's actually not a lot of data to tell us whether or not their randomization actually worked well. The second point is, as you said, this was a non-inferiority trial. We didn't really define that, but a non-inferiority trial means you're not trying to prove that your new vaccine is either better than or worse than the existing vaccine. You're simply trying to show that it is no worse than. And to do that, you get you get a little bit of a benefit in terms of sample size because you only have to show one side of the, the distribution. But you have to define that non-inferiority ahead of time. What does it mean for two things to be non-inferior? They defined it, I believe, as uh, a 10% decrease in seroconversion, which is you know, actually a, a fairly large percentage, but fine. They didn't actually get anywhere close to that. They were actually, you know, pretty close. But with with many of the biases that we worry about in randomized trials, the biases go towards the null, meaning that if you commit some of these, you know, if you have some of these biases built in, they tend to lead to closer to null effects than you might have observed had those biases not been present. In a non-inferiority trial, that actually is beneficial to you because your vaccine, your new vaccine could actually be worse, but because of this bias towards the null, they move towards each other. Now, all this is to say, I'm also convinced by a lot of the arguments that you all made. Oh, sorry, and the last one being the one that Don made, which is that this is also a, a surrogate marker. It's not the actual protection. We don't show less yellow fever. We're only showing a surrogate marker. I am... You know, I'm convinced by some of the arguments that you make that we do have high levels of protection, and that's really impressive. Their follow-up is outstanding, 96.7% at one year. But I guess I'm just a little surprised in a trial that is this complex that we don't have a lot of the supporting data that would allow us to have complete confidence in this. And that is the only reason why I'm not as totally on board as you all are, though I, I... I do see a lot positive in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a couple of comments. First of all, you know, we, we have known for 50 years approximately that, you know, there, there is a surrogate marker for protection, which is a PRNT assay greater than 40 with a titer greater than 40. And so people do not run clinical efficacy studies on yellow fever anymore because the disease has been largely controlled. So it would be almost impossible to do so because it's very hard to get exposure rates yep. high enough to do the I trial. Think- Fair, uh, and fair second point. of all, you know, that question has been asked and answered 30, 40 years ago. So we don't need to keep doing that. We can just focus on the surrogate marker. And and here, again, we're you know we're achieving geometric mean titers on the PRNC assay that are 100-fold above the surrogate marker for protection. 
So, so that's point number one. Point number two, to generate immunogenicity data in a vaccine study, you don't actually don't need that many people. So 120 is I, kind of typical for a, for immunogenicity study. Yeah, I, I, that's where I disagree, though. I mean, you're right in the sense that from a sample size standpoint, that is true. But from just the, the you know, whenever you randomize small numbers, you increase the, the probability of, of chance differences between the groups that might explain something. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm never going to be totally convinced by small randomized comparisons. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the difference here, you know, comparing this with other studies, other interventions that we've talked about is that the, that the response is very specific. You know, we're, mm. we're really randomizing, you know, an intervention directed at a bunch of lymphocytes who are, are going to respond to these antigens in, in, you know, in fairly predictable ways. So I don't know that, you know, sex or age would matter all that much. Immune status off, off, obviously matters tremendously, which is why they look at HIV. You know, but then if you look at the ages, there are, you know, I suppose people who are very old or very young are going to respond differently. But the average age here was really very consistent, around 35 years in each of the groups. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I think those are all, those are all really good points. I just would have liked to have, to have seen a little bit more data to support this. All right, let's, let's move on to our, our second segment where we want to talk about some, some data. This was a really short piece in, in JAMA by Tom Shimabakuro. It, the article was entitled Allergic Reactions, Including Anaphylaxis After Receipt of First Dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 Vaccine. And essentially, you know, so the Pfizer and the Moderna, well, now others, but the, those two vaccines were the first two to be rolled out against COVID. The Pfizer vaccine was the, was Moderna first or Pfizer first? I, I believe it was Pfizer, right? Pfizer was first. By, like, Pfizer was first. And so this is a study that is looking at, or a study, I don't know if you even want to call this a study so much as this is a, a tabulation of data from the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System that we have here in the United States. I don't know if either of you have any experience directly with that system that you could speak to exactly, you know, what information gets in there and how, but, you know, it's a, it's a, a reporting system for adverse events. And so this was reporting... So between the December 14th and the 23rd of 2020, there were one, you know, just under 1.9 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine that was administered. And in that, uh, and I should say the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, that's the CDC that collects that data. So the CDC in that time had identified 21 cases of reports submitted to the Vaccine Adverse Event System that meant criteria for anaphylaxis. So they estimate that is a rate of 11.1 cases per million doses administered. So this is something that is very rare, but obviously when it comes to vaccines, this is, you know, we we have trial data that establishes the the efficacy. It establishes safety for things that appear in large enough numbers to appear in trials, like, you know, the the sort of the typical vaccine adverse events like headache or fever or, you know, pain around the injection site. But more rare adverse events won't necessarily get picked up in a trial because there just aren't enough people. So you have this system to look at whether or not these vaccines are associated with any any rare but more severe side effects. And 
you know, that's what, what they are reporting here. So this is early data, and this is a system that is reporting in side effects that people, you know, believe are associated, but, but there is no comparison group here. No comparison either to other vaccines or a comparison to just sort of what are the event rates of, of you know, these adverse events, in particular anaphylaxis, in the general population, right? Because we know that just by chance, some people will have, you know, some of these symptoms after, you know, close in time to the to the to getting a vaccine that are that are just you know unrelated they're related to something else and we're just picking it up in time as being causally or sorry not causally but but related in time <laughs> so i guess my question is you know when you both look at this data you both are, are clinicians i'm not you know do you do you see something here and, and and chris you have a lot of experience with vaccines in particular do you see anything here that is is noteworthy, or is this sort of what you would expect in the pattern of rollout of a of a new vaccine? Chris, you wanna you wanna respond first? Sure. So the the first is that the you know the the, the spontaneous reporting through VAERS is as you said uncontrolled, right? We don't have a counterfactual. We just have this person received this vaccine and this thing happened, and 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 it's very difficult to to make you know definitive sense of that based on, you know, those, you know, the way that the VAERS system is constructed. But with that said, anaphylaxis is sort of a, I think, a, a unique case mm-hmm. because, you know, people who have anaphylaxis are, are invariably triggered by something. And so you could imagine mm-hmm. that, you know, this person is going through their daily life day after day after day after day after day. They are not having anaphylaxis. Then they go to the, the health center. They got a shot of the COVID vaccine. And 15 minutes later, they have anaphylaxis. To me, I'm like, the vaccine caused anaphylaxis. I have no mm-hmm. doubt that that is mm-hmm. a cause and effect relationship because why then? Of all the coincidences, why then? But, you know... At the same time, you know, there were, uh, you know, 1.8 million doses given, and this only happened to 21 people. So, you know, it, it's it's not certain, but it's it's darn suspicious in my view. Yeah. So, 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 in answer to your question, Chris, why then? I mean, you know, somebody is is exposed to something else at the same time they're exposed to the vaccine, un, 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 unaware. I mean, that would be an incredible coincidence. But we're also talking about very rare events, one in, you know, one in, I, I forget what the number was. And therefore, you know, there's got to be some times that rare things happen unrelated to. So I, I, I'm not trying to say that, that those are not causally related. I'm just trying to say, I, I don't know what the expectation would be in the absence of vaccine. It's, it's a high rate for a vaccine. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Okay. So like for, okay, that's for helpful influenza, we'd probably be looking at, you know, less than one in a million maybe even one less than one in 10 million. So okay. th- this is a, a, a an unusually high rate for a vaccine. And I, I just want to also add, ask you, could there be any reason for that that is explained by the population that we're Absolutely. vaccinating? Because we're not, okay, Absolutely, Absolutely. So one of the clues in this case series is that of the, 20, the 21 uh, individuals who are listed here, 19 out of the 21 are women. So why why would that be so? I'm 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 not aware. Maybe maybe Don, you know, but I I'm not aware that there's a twenty to one ratio of anaphylactic reactions in women versus men. I don't think that's true. 
I think it's probably closer to 50-50. So if we're seeing a 20 to 1 ratio here of men to women getting this reaction, my first thought is that this is the first wave, and I bet a lot of these are frontline healthcare workers, and I bet a lot of these are nurses, and nursing is still predominantly a female profession. And, and so that, that's an interesting clue, because if that's true, then you would think that on average, nurses, male or female nurses, uh, but nurses in general and healthcare professionals in, in general, are aware of the VAERS system and are probably more likely to report their reactions than the general mm-hmm. population. So this is a little bit like the nurses' health study, where we're, we're learning uh, you know, information, demographic, epidemiologic information from a population that is highly health literate and behaves maybe differently from the general population. So I do wonder if, the, if what we're seeing is that this higher rate is in some degree a reporting bias because we're dealing with a population that are so health literate and more likely to report. And Chris, the other, presumably the other population, though, that we are, are vaccinating early on are those with uh, those who are over 75 and those with comorbid conditions. Are there any reason why those would be associated with anaphylaxis? Um, no, not that I'm aware. Don? No, though, I, I, you know, I think the imbalance in, 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 in females pertains also to long-term nursing care because women live longer than men. Good point. And, I, you know, I, I, I agree that these are probably skewed in, ter- in terms of the high propensity of women in uh, frontline healthcare workers, which to me kind of mitigates the fact that you've got such an overabundance of women with anaphylaxis here because probably the denominator has an overabundance of women for just the reasons that you stated, Chris. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I wanted to say is that this is um, this is a system that is not. I don't think that this is open to individual patients to be able to report their reaction. Right. This is this is a system where the healthcare work, not the worker, but the physician who was responsible for administering the vaccine or the organization responsible for administering the vaccine is the reporting entity. So you know, it's not something that you can go online and report your adverse event. So this is probably this is almost definitely an underreporting of the actual events out there for for that reason. And and it's also an underreporting. I mean this is just anaphylaxis. This is an under this that doesn't address any of the other infrequent serious adverse events that may occur after they leave the vaccination station. So this is only one very, very small slice. What I do want to say is that in light of that, that there is a system that has been set up by the CDC called VSAFE, which does elicit adverse reactions and their frequency from the individual recipient of the vaccine. And I, I just want to underscore the importance of all of us who get vaccinated to participate in that program, because that's the only way we're going to get better information and better data. And we have a chance of getting more, possibly more comprehensive data than that, which is restricted to being reported from from the from the vaccine sites. Mm-hmm. One thing just to add, you, you'd mentioned, you know, that this could also be nursing home members. But the, the, they do give the ages here. And the oldest person in this series was 60. So it, it, you know, most of them uh, are in their 30s. Yeah. So it, did, it probably excluded okay. nursing homes. So, so, would, so this would is probably not thinking. nursing home res, rep, uh, residents, but much more likely. And I wish they had given their professions. That would be so helpful. Mm. Chris, is, it, is, it, is, is, the, is, the 60, is the age of 60 for all of the 1.8 million, or is it just among the 21? Within the 21, the oldest person was 60. 
Right. So that doesn't tell us what that doesn't tell us whether they included long term care facilities or not. Right. But if, if, if the theory is that this is this is more likely um, that we're probably looking at a high proportion of, of nurses who tend to be women, this would fit with that pattern because they all seem True. to be women and under the age of 60. True. True. I agree with that. Okay, so it does seem like there, you know, there's something that we need to pay attention to going forward. The distribution may may change as we start to vaccinate other populations, but certainly I thought it was interesting and worth worth looking at. Any other any last thoughts on this before we move on? Yeah, it was interesting to me that everybody except for I think it's four or five participants had some history of an allergic reaction in the past or anaphylaxis in the past, right. except for one, two, three, four, five. So, you know, it's like a substantial portion of people had were thoroughly unsuspecting and there was no way seemingly that you could screen for the development of anaphylaxis. The, the, the other thing was that I think it's important for listeners to, to know that everybody Everybody survived. There was one report. I think there was one report of a of a admission to an ICU, but everybody survived and everybody recovered. And the vast majority of them recovered with a, you know a, a dose of epinephrine and a, a little bit of, of of care. They were discharged home from the vaccination site. There were only what was it two or three people that actually four people were admitted to the to be inpatients. That's yep. right. So I think that's a note of of optimism. I agree. And I, I also think, you know, this is sort of the usefulness in this information is that this is something that, you know, vaccine sites can can then be prepared for. And mm-hmm. hopefully we, we continue to have positive, positive outcomes. Yeah. I mean, it gives in, in, a way, in some ways you can interpret this as, as maybe a worst case scenario. My, my guess is that this is, you know, this there's there's some selection bias and reporting bias here. And that the true rate of anaphylaxis is, is you know, in the general population will be will be different from this. But it's helpful to know that, you know, your risk is less than one in 100,000 yep. from the vaccine. Yep. Absolutely. Whereas your risk of getting sick from COVID or dying from COVID is considerably higher than that. Absolutely. All right. Let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. I'm uh, I'm going to go first again, if you guys don't mind. I have a story. It's a it's a story that was reported. It was in Nature's News. This is, goes back a ways to 2017 published on my birthday, which is always interesting. So do you guys, you guys, obviously, we talked about Wikipedia in our, our segment where we were talking about the, the social dilemma. Yeah. You guys, you guys use Wikipedia? Yeah, constantly. I love it. Do you use, do you ever cite Wikipedia in your uh, scientific papers? Never, ever. <laughs> no, because that is, that is, that is considered a no-no, right? Yeah. We cannot. Yeah. In fact, universities uh, often tell, you know, tell students that they can't cite Wikipedia, which I think is pretty interesting because most of the time, the things that I'm looking for in Wikipedia, the information is actually quite useful and good. You know, if I'm trying to look up a, a statistical formula or something like that, I go to Wikipedia and it's right there. But I, apparently I'm not allowed to not allowed to cite it. But the question is, you know, how much. If, if nobody's citing Wikipedia, how much influence does Wikipedia have on the language that we use in scientific publications? Ooh. So to answer this question, there was uh, some researchers, at least one of them was from MIT. And what they did was this group had, they got some doctoral students together and they commissioned them to write 43 chemistry articles on topics that did not currently exist in Wikipedia. 
And then what they did was they randomly selected half of them to actually be published and they held the other half as controls. So half of them get actually put up on Wikipedia, the others are held aside, and then they wait for a period of time. And then they look at, using text mining techniques, the impact that those articles have on the language being used in the scientific papers. Wow. So they they are able to do this. There's sort of these measures of, of drift that they use in the language. So they they find that on average, there is roughly one new term appears for every 250, 250 words in general. That's sort of the drift that happens in the literature over time. But when they compared the articles that got published to the articles that didn't get published, they found that those articles seem to be responsible for an additional new term every for every 300 words. So, you know, roughly a doubling in the amount of drift being caused by articles that were published in, or articles that, that, you know, in Wikipedia, whatever, I don't know if you call those articles or not, suggesting that Wikipedia articles are actually having, if they're not being cited, they're at least having an impact on the way that we talk about our research in the scientific literature, which I just thought was pretty fascinating. I agree. You know, I don't know how- Wikipedia has a lot of power. Yeah, I don't know how generalizable that becomes to, you know, all articles, but it does, you know, it does suggest at least in some circumstances, it 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 has an impact and that we as researchers are clearly using Wikipedia. They had some sort of theories as to how it might be drifting in in ways that aren't necessarily direct. They could be a little bit more indirect, but it does appear to be having an impact, which I just thought was really cool. Well, I All right, Chris, cool. what do you Oh, I just checked Wikipedia uh, searching for Christopher Gill, and there is a Christopher John Gill here, but it's a former British politician who was born in Wolverhampton. I'm outraged. You should be. You absolutely <laughs> should be. All right. Well, what what other than other famous Chris Gills do you have for us? Well, since we've been talking about vaccines, and because I've been getting a lot of questions from people about vaccines lately, there were there were a couple of things that, that that I wanted to talk about. So this is not really whacking weird. This is more like I, I hope to be somewhat useful. Mm. And I wanted to talk about about reactogenicity, you know, because people in in the news talk constantly about side effects from the, the COVID vaccines. And, and I wanted to to maybe talk a little bit about what it is that that we are talking about when we're talking about side effects and specifically what what is called reactogenicity in the vaccine literature. And so generally speaking, when we're talking about reactogenicity, we're talking about how bad do you feel either at the injection site or generally after you get a shot. And so it, mm-hmm. it's sort of a subdomain of safety, but it's it it feels different because we're really not talking about a true safety issue because we're really just saying like, did you feel cruddy for one or two or three days? But we're not talking about anything dire happening. And yet there's this assumption that when a vaccine has side effects, that we're talking about something really dangerous, but we're really not actually. So that's the first point I wanted to make. The second point was that when we talk about reactogenicity, there are three main components that drive reactogenicity. And, and these are mechanical, chemical, and immunological. And we forget about the first two often and focus on the latter almost exclusively. But, but we shouldn't because it, we're, we're making a big mistake when we do that. And so when I say you know, mechanical, 
the fact that somebody stuck a piece of steel into your arm and injected half a cc of fluid, creating a bubble in your muscle, is a mechanical source of irritation. It hurts just to get injected with saline. So that's the first component. But no one would say that that is important. The second one is what was what was sort of the chemical irritation due to the constituents of the vaccine. So when you inject, say, COVID vaccine, you've got saline and you've got some chemicals that are stabilizing some, you know, the buffers and the pH and stuff, which can be chemically irritating. And then you have the lipid microspheres, which are definitely chemically irritating. And you have, then you have the mRNA molecule itself, which is also definitely irritating because your immune system knows that whenever it sees free-floating mRNA molecules around is usually bad news and it should get upset. And then, so, but all of that is chemical, right? It's not really Mm -hmm. the immune response. It's just the the irritation of the constituents. And then the third thing is the, is, is the actual immune driven reactogenicity, which has its own pattern. And so, for example, when we looked at the COVID vaccine local reactions from dose one to dose, dose two, they're, they're really no different suggesting that most of what drives the reactogenicity at the injection site to dose one or dose two is chemical irritation. It's not the, you know, it's not the immune system. Whereas the, what goes up between dose one and dose two are things like malaise and fatigue and headache and, you know, sleepiness and lots of, you know, loss of appetite and muscle aches. All of those definitely do go up, which suggests that those are probably due to the immune response as opposed to the chemical response. Hmm. So I, I, I and that and that's a good thing. And that's a good thing, except then this is this is where I kind of led because I think it's a good thing and you think it's a good thing and most of us think it's a good thing because it's sort of this no pain no gain theory, right? That mm-hmm. you, your immune system should be pissed off if you're reacting to an antigen. And so I went into the literature today and tried and tried and tried and failed to find a single paper that looks at the magnitude of the of the local or systemic reactions and the immune response to the vaccine. There is nothing that actually links those two. These two Mm. rates are cited in thousands of papers, but they're not cited as an interaction, like what is the linear regression of the magnitude of reactogenicity versus the magnitude of immunogenicity. I have never found anything that actually compares those two. And yet intuitively, it seems like there should be. It's just a question that is so obvious that it may not have been formally asked and answered. So, so Chris, you hear a lot of people say that if you are feeling, you know, you're developing a fever or whatever, you're, that's, that's a sign that you are actually having an immune response. But that is, that is lore. I mean, that's not, I'm not hearing that from doctors specifically. Right. But it, Let me jump in here. But go ahead, Don. Yeah. Again, co- going back to the, 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 the data that I've been looking at on a weekly basis for about the last four or five months for this particular vaccine, which is of that same class, and I'm not going to name the manufacturer, but the, the vast majority of people who get one dose of the vaccine, oh, everybody, everybody develops an immune response, and everybody develops an immune response that is largely similar but a vast majority of people have, other than the localized pain, have no systemic reactions. And, and we hear about these the systemic reactions, which is fever, fatigue, and the things that you're saying, and we ascribe that to the, the immune reaction. But I, I think that, that that's a, a false connection because the vast majority of people feel perfectly fine. They have they have no systemic effects whatsoever, and they have they develop a, a great immune response. Yeah, I agree. So I think I, I, this this is my point. I was I'm so interested in this because these these domains of information are always cited in every vaccine paper you will ever read: reactogenicity and immunogenicity. 
But but why has no one regressed one against the other to see, to answer the question that people that a, always assume to be true? Does a higher degree of reactogenicity actually mean that your immune system is working better? And I could find nothing. Now, maybe our readers know better and, and, and or listeners can know better and could like point us to a paper, but I couldn't find anything. And it made me want to... No, like, that's, that's, that's my point, Chris, is, is that is the, the kind of systemic reactogenicity that you're talking about occurs in less than 5% of the people in the data that I've seen, where several hundreds of people have have been immunized, so I would think that that regression would completely fail. That you would find no connection. And you might be right. To to my knowledge, you know, personally, the only example of a vaccine where this uh, this relationship is really assumed to be true and probably is true is is the smallpox vaccine. Where if you don't get the the tank right. on your shoulder, it's presumed yep. to be a vaccine failure. But so then not, I wonder, like, well, how do we know that? <laughs> like, you know, is yeah. it true that that if you don't get a take, that you didn't <laughs> mount a systemic response? Do we know that? I, I mean, I don't know that actually. I just always assumed it was true. So yeah. it, it made me want to like like you know work our networks and see if Pfizer or Moderna or you know, Merck would be willing to part with some of its vaccine data and allow us to, to do a comprehensive analysis to ask really two related questions. One is mm. to do that regression analysis between the magnitude of reactogenicity and the magnitude of immunogenicity to see if there, if there is a relationship. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was some, but I, I'm inclined to believe like you do that it's if there's some, it's not much. Right, that there are too many other things going on here, including the mechanical sure. and the chemical irritation, and also the anticipation which is so there's a psychological dimension to reactogenicity that's very, very important. But the second one is that I would love to, to do sort of an exploratory, explanatory analysis to look at factors that might drive reactogenicity higher and lower. Is it more common in women or men or by age or body mass index or diabetes, yes or no, or, you know, all sorts of things. I, I would love to sort of see that, like, you know, more than just here are the reactogenicity data, here are the immunogenicity data, and we're not going to go any further and have a nice day, which is what most vaccine papers do. I would love to see us go deeper on this and actually explore what are the drivers of reactogenicity, and other than being able to rank vaccines as more or less painful and unpleasant, mm. what do we do with these data that is useful? Currently, the answer is not very much. Yeah, apparently not much. Well, that's super interesting. Thanks for that, Chris. Sure. Don, Don, what do you got for us? All right, I've got two papers, two short papers that I I want to I want to sort of introduce, and uh, it it they, they both address the same issue, which I find truly fascinating, and that is we're in an era of hyper-partisan politics. Yep. It seems as if there are very few people who are in the middle. And I think that the conventional wisdom has always been that one's political posture has, is, is largely, if not exclusively, determined by your environment. You know, Your politics are oftentimes the politics of your parents, or the politics of your friends, or or the politics of your lived experience. And the question really is, is there something more to that? Is there, are there biological components mm. that, that either contribute to or determine your political orientation? And given that, there are two papers. There's one which is by Douglas Oxley in the September issue of Science Magazine called Biology-Derived Politics, Political Attitudes Vary with Physiological Traits. And what they did is they measured the, physio the physiology of the response to a perceived threat, both a visual threat as well as an auditory 
threat. And what they did is they screened a bunch of participants by random, randomly calling, calling random numbers, and they found people who over the phone admitted to having strong political orientation, either very conservative or very liberal. They brought them in, and they took a bunch of baseline data, including their political beliefs. And then at the second visit, they brought them in again, and they measured the skin conductance. What the skin conductance is, is they put two electrodes on your skin, and they measure how your skin um, is conductive to a very, very small imperceptible electrical current. And that was a reflection of how much sweating you're doing, mm. which is a measure of the stress that you're under. And what yep. they did was that they, they measured that and they also measured something called blink electromyogram. So they looked basically at after the stimulus, how, how, how fidgety their eyes are. Mm. And they, they displayed in front of them three visual images. And Chris, you'll love this first one. So there was a, a, a picture of a very large spider on the face of a frightened person. Sure. Oh, measured, I don't like that. <laughs> measured the response. And then a dazed individual with a bloody face. And then an open wound with maggots in it. Oh, so, gross. <laughs> and then the auditory st stimuli where they would stare at a blank space for a relatively prolonged period of time. And then there would be a sudden burst of white noise, which would startle them. And they measured that and they correlated that with their political persuasion. Hmm. So there were lower sensitivities to sudden noises and threatening visual images. Those people were more likely to support foreign aid, liberal immigration policies, pacifism, and gun control. Mm -hmm. So it sort of reinforces the snowflake effect for people that are that are liberal liberal persuasion. So we're twitchy and anxious. <laughs> yeah. So we're more we're more impressionable. We're more scared. So the converse of that of the pain threshold was was that the people who were more tolerant were favored defense spending, capital punishment, patriotism, and the Iraq War. Then the second study did some, something really quite similar, but their measurement was an MRI of the brain on 90 individuals. And they, they found that they compared the volume of the gray matter in various parts of the brain by MRA in these two groups. And they found that greater liberalism was statistically significantly associated with increased gray matter volume in the anterior cingulate cortex. And greater conservatism was associated with an increased volume of the right amygdala. Hmm. And you could, you could, it was a dose response effect. So the volume increased in the direction of of increasing propensity to be liberal or propensity to be, to be conservative. And they say that a large amygdala is consistent with managing fear and uncertainty. Amygdala has many functions, including fear processing. Individuals with large amygdalas are more sensitive to fear. And that might suggest that individuals with large amygdalas are more inclined to integrate conservative views into their belief system. Wow. And, then, and then the cingulate cortex functions to monitor uncertainty and conflicts, higher capacity to tolerate uncertainty and conflicts, allowing people to have accept more liberal views. So here's a series of completely different assessments of what may be some biologically determined reasons why we fall into our particular political camps. Hmm. That is really interesting. Can we get to causal inference on this one? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a stretch. That might take us a little longer, but that is pretty cool. Thanks, yeah, Don. Yeah, so you might so you might find that you know all the people in your conservative caucus have big amygdalas. Yeah, well, mm. you can't see it from outside. No, you can't. 
But, well, but I'm, I'm going to bring that up next time someone starts like recommending uh, the Rush, Rush Limbaugh show to me. I'm going to say, I bet your amygdala is bigger on the right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that explains everything. Yeah, there you go. It explains everything. So that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at PropMatFox, or Don at, at DeepTheo1, or Chris at ID.Gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. <laughs>